And now we launch into controversy and craziness this morning. Had a few of you as you were entering into the door this morning just saying, hey, we can't wait for this whole thing about predestination. And I said, well, it was predestined before the foundations of the earth on this particular day, on this particular day. So uh, let's pray as we always do before we get started here. Father, we thank you for this time together. We are always desperate for your Holy Spirit to guide us. And particularly so this morning as we deal with a topic that has been controversial for almost 2,000 years. Maybe there was more consensus in the first two or 300 years of the church, but it's been a a very uh, divisive issue. It's been confrontational. There's been a lot of truculent debate that's gone on. And Lord, we need your help. We need your guidance. We don't want to overlook these things because we're confronted with them when we get into this book of Ephesians. In fact, right off the bat. So Lord, we need your Holy Spirit. Guide us, direct us, and give us insight. And even more importantly, Lord, help, help us walk closer to you by what we engage with this morning. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Well, let's go back. We're going to read the first seven, eight, nine verses here of Ephesians chapter 1. For those of you who haven't been here, we started uh, two weeks ago, we started a series going to go ahead and go back to series. I'm going to call them series now. Series on the book of Ephesians. We've learned a lot so far. We figured out where this happened. How did this happen? It was Paul's second missionary journey. We saw how the church was planted and how it began to thrive. We saw how significant Ephesus was as something not too distant from what we see with the Coachella Valley, to be honest with you. It was, in many ways, a port city. Even though we don't have a port here, we have, uh, as you can see, people in and out and in and out here in the desert. So many of you have second homes. Many that will be coming back have second, some third, fourth, and fifth homes that they're here. Maybe a month, maybe a few weeks, and you're impacted by, you're impacted by the word, hopefully even here at Church at the Red Door. So Ephesus is, in many ways, cosmopolitan city, similar to the Coachella Valley here. And so I think it's particularly insightful for us. And again, as I alluded to last week, we're not sure that the letter to the Ephesians is actually written to the Ephesians. Some of the early manuscripts, some, not all, were not even addressed specifically to the letter, the church at Ephesus. So we derive from that it was a general letter. Paul wasn't correct anything specific at Ephesus. He wasn't doing anything uh, notable just for Ephesus. So it was a general letter to be read among all the churches. And by the way, When people ask, well, how did you get your Bible? How was it finally codified? It was agreed with that this had apostolic roots, and certainly it did with the Apostle Paul. So Ephesians chapter 1, what I want to do here is is I just want to read this, and then we're going to start trying to get into the crux of this. And a lot of you know what's coming, because I set it up a little bit last week. It deals with, again, a very, very challenging, challenging portion of Scripture. And it's not just in one place, it's in several places, and so I'm going to read you the entirety. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, as we looked at last week, by the will of God. That's what we're going to be looking at this morning. Do you come to Jesus by the will of God or by your will? Is this a free will thing or is this a God-driven process? Paul says right off the bat, by the will of God. To the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. It almost seems a paradox right off the beginning. To those who are faithful. Maybe there were some there that weren't being faithful. Were they not the called? Were they not the chosen? Were they not the elect? Were they not predestined if they weren't being faithful? 
Or was it just bad behavior or the process of sanctification? I mean, these issues, all of a sudden we get, you could almost make an argument on both sides as we're going to see. And today I'm going to take you into a once upon a time story and I'm going to take you back in history and let you see how a lot of the thinking emerged as we deal with this idea of predestination. And again, as I told you last week, I get asked all the time, do you believe in predestination? I said, of course I believe in predestination. Defining exactly what that means is something altogether different. The Bible does talk about predestination. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Now, by the way, the promise here is not material blessing. The promise here is not what a lot of people think about Christian blessing. The promises are not that you're going to have this car or this house or this kind of a lifestyle or get this perfect job or never suffer. The promises here are spiritual blessings. I find that interesting. The promises of God are always spiritual. Sometimes they entail material blessing. Often they don't. Look, if the gospel doesn't work on the streets of Calcutta, then it's not the right gospel. If we preach a gospel only based upon America and all of our material and physical blessings, then it's, and that gospel can't travel. This gospel travels, as we saw last week, around the world, around the globe. All the prophets had seen that all the nations will see this light. We have to be careful of that. We have to be very careful that we're not preaching a gospel that can only be maybe even manifest here in the United States. We have to make sure we're preaching a gospel that can go to the poorest and the lowliest of places on the planet where they will never see physical blessing. They may die of starvation. The promises here are not physical. They are spiritual. He says he's blessed us in heavenly places just as he, are you ready? Okay, here we go. Chose us. In him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless in him, in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus to himself according to the kind intention of his will. To the praise and the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed upon us in the beloved, in him... We have redemption through his blood. That's why we are church at the red door. This church very much understands atonement and redemption and the centrality of the cross, always. He said, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. So we deal three times. Paul starts, Paul, an apostle, by the will of God. Then it says we were chosen. And then that we were predestined before the foundations of the earth were even laid. That's as far as we're going to get in Ephesians today. But we could stay here forever. I'm going to try to work diligently to get through this today so I don't have to sweat bullets during the week. This is a tough one. This is challenging. Many of you may not be aware of this at all. Let me say this before we even start. We're dealing with the issue, as I told you last week, we're going to deal with Christology, we're going to deal with soteriology, all these things. 
This is a soteriological issue. What does that mean? Why is that even relevant to me in this day and age? We have to have our understanding, our deep theological roots. We need these moorings in our life. We really do. You may not think you need them, but you need them. Soteriology is the study of what it takes to be saved. What are the issues dealing with salvation? Paul seems to allude to that right here in the first few verses of Ephesians. What you need to know now, whether or not you come down on one side or the other, or you don't even understand anything that's said today and you walk out here scratching your head, you can still have a personal relationship with Jesus and be just as saved as someone who has a doctorate in soteriology and theology and has, understands everything there is to know. Let me tell you something. This is not, this would in no way disallow you from being saved because you don't understand the fullness of how you're saved. You just somehow know Jesus was who he said he was and somehow you know and believe that he was raised from the dead and that you can now talk to God freely because of what he did for you. And this may not make a whole lot of sense to you. Can I just tell you that's okay. That is okay. Nevertheless, we have to deal with what's in front of us. So once upon a time, I want to take you way back in time and I want, you to, I want to try to give us a little church history today. Because first of all, and this is important to say, there were many councils over the first 400 years or so of the church that started after 313. 313 A.D. was a a date that you really need to know in church history. That's where Constantine under Nero and Diocletian and a lot of these guys that were persecuting violently the church in 313 A.D., Constantine, after a vision that he had while marching into battle, had a vision and all of a sudden, everything turned, and the Christians became, went from being the hunted to the official state religion of the Roman Empire, 313. Now, I've got to tell you, you say, well, that, there was a lot of good things in that. Yeah, persecution began to decrease, and that was wonderful, but there were a lot of tragic things that happened as a result of mixing and trying to make a state entity driven by something that people have to make a decision in. And to make it a state religion is challenging, and yet it seemed the best course at the time. And so what naturally happened is, is that, okay, Christianity is now being hailed as the, the religion of the Roman Empire. And that alone was miraculous. That is unbelievable. I mean, we went from worshiping the, pan, worshiping the pantheon of gods and everything that Rome was involved with, from cultic practices to, to orgies to all kinds of crazy sacrifice and everything else, to actually having its roots in, ostensibly, the Christian message. Well, along comes a guy named Pelagius. Pelagius lived up in what is now the British Isles, and he was a monk. And he made his way down towards the great Rome, and what he saw there flabbergasted him. He saw practices that were in no way relatable to what he read in his scripture. So his immediate response was a knee-jerk response to say what? It says, well, it's clear all this thing about, and he, was, he had a rival that we'll talk about in a minute, Augustine, who very much believed at the later stages in his life in predestination and that God had chosen us in Christ. And he said, look, you can say you're chosen, 
But let me tell you something. You can say that all you want, but you still have to obey the moral law of God. And what, whether or not this was his full position, it's, it's hard to understand historically what his full position is. But this became Pelagianism. And what was fascinating about it, at a council at nowhere other than Ephesus itself, it was deemed heresy. Because essentially what Pelagius was saying is, you can make your own way towards God, and this idea of original sin is incorrect. God creates us individually and uniquely, and that we were actually created without the taint of the sin all the way back to Adam. So he did not believe in original sin. He believed we were fully capable in and of ourselves to obey the law and that we should obey the law, and in that way we were accepted by the creator of the universe. The church early on said, no, this has gone too far. There's this thing called grace, and we can go back to the text. And as we'll see later in Ephesians chapter 2, you've been saved by grace through faith. Now, at some point, there were some needs to balance what Augustine, Augustine was saying, or Augustine's pronounced both ways. Augustine was talking about he was on the northern part of the continent of Africa at a place called Hippo. And he became ultimately the bishop. Now, he'd gone through a long series of stages in his own understanding of the text. Many thought he was influenced too much by Platonic thought, at least uh, Neo-Platonic thought, which talked about this great oneness and that somehow this great power predestined everything to occur. Even Manichaeism, which I won't get into, he had some strange influences early on in his walk of, of discovery, trying to figure all this out. And then at one point, he was all about free will. And then at some point, there was a shift in him. Much of that, I'm sure, occurred because of his own struggles with sexual sin. So Augustine was there and Pelagius and now, and they were born almost in the exact same year from what we get. It's within a few years and died about the exact same time. And they seem to be a picture of the schism that was growing in the church. Are you predestined and chosen? Or do you make the decisions? Do you make the shots? And are you inherently capable of doing that? So we're going to go on this road of Pelagianism all the way to Augustine and his thoughts about free will that would eventually be adopted by the Reformation. Now, we're going to talk a little bit about this. I know this is, to some of you, may seem like, I'm just trying to figure out whether God loves me. Just hang in there. There will be tidbits for you today, I promise you. But this is important for us to get through because if you don't understand anything about church history, you're, as often quoted, you're obviously probably going to repeat it. It's important to understand all the challenges that have gone down over the last 2,000 years in trying to determine. Now, what's important to say here, by the way, is that the word has already been stated and the Bible was codified at a point well in advance of all these councils. What God said about reality and certainly the Old Testament, which we, from which we get much of our doctrine, and then the New Testament just shines light on it. Much of this happened well in advance of these councils. But it was all the syncretism. It was all the stuff that was going on in Ephesus. It was going on around the Mediterranean where they were bringing in old pagan practices and Gnosticism, which was really dualism and Manichaeism and Platonic thought and all these different tributaries. And they were hearing about Jesus. And then it was mix and match and all these things. And so these councils continued to convene 
over time because they had many other issues. It wasn't just predestination. It was the whole idea of the Trinity. This is a guy named Arius, and this is an Arian controversy. And so there were multiple various councils that had to convene over a period of a couple hundred years that said, no, Jesus was fully human. And then another council had to come and say, no, Jesus was fully divine. Uh, No, Jesus was both embodied, both fully divine and fully human. And this, this took hundreds of years. And some people were imprisoned as heretics and back and forth. And some things that you may even take for granted or not even understand. Just the right to be baptized. Just, I mean, all these different issues or the ecclesiology, who had the, who had the real right? I mean, there was, a, there was the Donatist movement, which came along about the time of Augustine as well. And the Donatists were very angry because they said, look at all these people in Rome and look what they did. And many of them bowed before the emperor and they, they're not, they're, they have not lived up to the standard, the biblical standard. They should not be leaders. And it's the Donatist movement. So it was council after council after council. For several hundred years, they were trying to make their way. Really, see, but everything had already been written in advance. They were just trying to figure it out. Not too different from what we're trying to do this morning. So we get this picture of Pelagianism on one extreme and then Augustine on the other extreme. Now, again, this is a thousand years before the Reformation. For those of you who don't know what the Reformation is, that was Luther coming and saying, no, we cannot sell indulgences. The church can't sell, sell away your sins. I mean, there's all kinds of things. And he tacked his 95 Thesis on the, on the door there. And, and, it's, and that started off this explosion. And then guys like Calvin and Zwingli and some of these early reformers. And that's why we have Protestantism today. And there's this schism between Roman Catholicism and that. And I, and I, and we, but see, I see even in our day, there's amazing things happening within the Catholic Church. And there's amazing things happening on both sides of it. God is still operating in the context built around his son. Some of you may be offended by that. Some of you, look, I know we have many Catholics that come here to church at the red door. Some I know that go to they go to Mass, and they come here to church at the Red Door. And, then I, and I know inversely, we've got all kinds of... So we have people on both sides of the aisle of this idea of predestination or free will. and all. Well, there's many places to divide. There's one place to come around, and his name is Jesus. And I know that's a, simple, that's a simplified way of viewing it, but it actually is very true. So we have Pelagianism. Then we have this thing called semi-Pelagianism, which is trying to somebody trying to trying to synthesize what Augustine was talking about, who, by the way, was a Catholic bishop. Augustine was talking about and, and Pelagius, and that became semi-Pelagianism. And then about a thousand years later was a guy named Jacob Arminius, and this is where we get Arminianism. So what I'm going to do this morning, rather than go, wake up your neighbor, okay, wake up your neighbor again, let's, let's start afresh. I've got a couple of props here. If I don't, these guys don't mind coming down, Blair and Mike Mills, and I'm going to have them come down here and I'm going to have them start by just standing right here at the base. Now, we're going to try to give you a picture here, a word picture, so we can make this as simple, a complicated issue, as simple as we possibly can, and hopefully something in some way you will remember because this is relevant to your walk. Okay, so let's say just as a function of this picture that you'll have in your mind that God the Father is here. His throne, he's enthroned in the heavens, and his presence is here, and we find ourselves down in a pit 
separated from a holy God. Now we're going to look at the differences between Pelagianism, semi-Pelagianism, Arminianism, and then what we would call a lot of the predestination, truly Calvinistic view of life. Okay? So I'm going to try to give you a general sense. So in short, first, this is going to be a representation of Pelagianism. So here you are, you're down in a pit, and you've got a few tools down here, and I've seen this done, and I think it's an appropriate way to view it. You've got a few tools down there, and here's God, and all you've got to do is put together your tools, use your ladder up here, and make a ladder, and then crawl up out of here so that you can make your way towards God. God. Now, these two guys, what they are under Pelagian ideas are they are they're not tainted by original sin they're not enslaved by sin they have a lot of ability free will their own free will volition to climb up climb all their way and make their way towards god it's just really up to them make a decision you can make a decision to go that way or you can make a decision to go this way are you with me generally and i'm we're leaving out a lot because there are different schools within pelagianism as there are many other things and even arminianism there's wesleyan arminianism and things but just in general how do you guys have it well where does jesus come into all this i am not jesus but for this particular thing i will i will act as that i am here and i am a model and you can see how I've lived my life as Jesus. You can see that. Now just get up and pull yourself up by your bootstraps and climb your way to God. I've been the pattern. Do what I've done. The early church said, no, that's not right. It's not biblical. It's not right. Grace is involved here. In fact, God does the willing and the choosing, not you. And even if you did do the choosing, let me tell you something, it's even more challenging. Why? Because you don't have the capacity to do it. Because you are tainted by original sin. You can't just begin to change your life and be a good person and then make your way into the presence of God. I mean, the Bible's clear. No one, come, no one can even look upon the face of God and live. What about Romans 3.23? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Or Jesus in John chapter 6, he said, no one can come unto the Father unless he is drawn. Many other places we could look. So Pelagianism, and rightly so, was deemed heretical, not orthodox, not Christian by some of the early councils. Okay, so now, second stage. What about semi-Pelagianism? So now these two guys, well, there's not total depravity, as we'll get to when we look at Calvinism. There's clear that there's some depravity here. I mean, these guys aren't perfect. So now Jesus, all Jesus has to do, and again, this is a gross oversimplification, but Jesus is willing to kind of come down to the edge, not only pattern, but go, be, go beyond being a pattern, and reach down and kind of help you guys up a little bit. So I'm going to help you guys up a little bit. Okay, good, good, good. Now you guys can make your way to the Father. Good, good. Congratulations. Now, again, semi-Pelagianism, there's a lot of dispute as to exactly what semi-Pelagianism is. Some say, and, and some, and I will tell you right now, some would say, well, that's what Catholicism, Catholicism is. It's semi-Pelagianism. But I will, I will tell you, and I did a, a lot of research, the Catholics say, no, we are not semi-Pelagianists. That is not true. We do believe in the absolute grace of God. Now, from them to get from here 
to there, even many semi-Pelagianists would say, you still need the intervention of God's grace through the Holy Spirit to allow you to begin to change and become more like Jesus. Okay, guys, back down into the pit. Generally, that's semi-Pelagianism. Now we want to talk about, we want to go a thousand years into the future for a guy named Jacob Arminius. This became Arminianism, and most today would tend towards one camp or the other, as we're going to see the last two camps, and this camp is the Arminius camp. Now, what the Arminius camp would say is, is these guys are totally depraved. We know what the Bible says. We, we, we read Scripture. They are totally depraved. Why don't you guys, at least, you don't have to lay down, but sit down down there. Sit on the floor down there, poor guys. These guys are sitting down there, and Arminius would say, no, we absolutely believe in total depravity. But these guys have to make a choice. Now, God's grace, absolutely. Jesus is going to come down in the pit with them and extend them grace, even help them in very profound ways, get up out of where they are and lead them to the Father. But at some point, they have to make a decision that, no, this is the decision that I'm making. It, in fact, there's grace there because Jesus is down in the pit. This is called prevenient grace. It goes before their ability to do anything because they're in bad shape. They can't, they're, they're, they're wounded, they're crippled, they can't do anything on their own. And so what Jesus comes down is he extends that kind of grace. But, and here's the key, they have a choice to make. And they choose to go with or without. They still have the choice. They can exit stage right and say, look, I don't believe in all this stuff. This stuff doesn't make any sense to me. So for ours, who, which one of you wants to be saved? Well, we're, Blair, Blair's going to be saved. And Mike, he's, Mike's lo- he's so much like Jesus, he'd be okay in this thing. So I, I'm, I'm carrying him. Jesus is carrying him up the ladder. He's wounded. He's crippled. Everything. And then I'm going to carry him. I'm going to get the process of transformation and everything and the whole, through the power of the Holy Spirit. We're going to work and walk together all the way to the Father, all the way to the Father. And one day, at the end of Blair's life, he's going to be presented before the Father, and Blair's going to say, I'm with him. I hope you're going to say that. Right? And so that's Blair. He's with Jesus. He's been absolutely, utterly transformed. But he did have to make a decision. That grace that was down there and shown to him was resistible. He could have said no. He maintained some free will, even though he could not possibly have done it himself. Thank you, Blair. Back down to the pit. (laughs) Now we come to the final of the four. And these are the basic four constructs. Again, this is a a massive simplification. But the basic four constructs are these. The last one is what we'll call Calvinism. Calvinism is is said, no, when we read this and this, this Ephesians 1, 1 through 7 and then on... And even in two are the very core of the proof texts for Calvinism. Because Calvinists will say, no way. These guys are not just wounded. These guys are dead. Would you guys mind being dead for a little bit? I I told them, I said, you're going to have to really be humbled here this morning. Because you're going down to the ground, no life, no breath, no nothing. And, of course, what does Ephesians 2 said? You were dead in your transgressions and your sin. You had no capacity. You were enslaved to various lusts. All these things, you're completely incapable of anything. There's no choice here. 
You were either predestined and chosen by a living God to be with him or not. And so, and, and again, I don't think this is an unfair view of five-point Calvinism that Jesus does come down and he does get down in the pits and before the foundations of the world. And this is where some of you are going to have a, have a jerk back on this. And before the foundations of the world is that one of them is chosen and one of them has not been chosen. So Jesus comes down and in this case gives life, brings, brings life back into my brother. This guy's dead, but he wasn't chosen. You stay dead. <laughs> and, and Jesus brings him. And look, it doesn't matter how far afield Mike runs. He may run, he may go, he may choose to not, to go back to his old lifestyle. It doesn't matter. He's predestined. There's ultimately nothing he can do, nothing that he can do to escape a loving God. And so even if he departs the faith, even if he turns his back, he's already predestined. Ultimately, it's already in the books. And, and five-point Calvinists would read it exactly like that. And so ultimately, Jesus gave him life. Jesus chose him before the foundation. Jesus ushered him all the way in, ultimately, into the presence of God and into the presence of God for all of eternity. Can you give these guys a big round of applause? Thank you. Thanks, brother. So what do we do with all this? What do we do with all this? Because some of it you're saying, you're saying, yeah, that was incredible. I was chosen. I've been chosen before the foundations. There's nothing I can do really to escape the love of God. It makes me want to love God more. And then others of you are saying, well, wait a minute. Wait a minute, I know I had to make a choice. Doesn't the Bible say today's the day of salvation? Don't harden your heart. Choose God. Make a decision. And then when you're here, make a decision to serve him. And it's the perseverance of the saints, even though it's used differently in Calvinism, there's this juxtaposition where it sounds like I'm chosen before the foundations of the earth, and yet those who endure to the end will be saved. I mean, it seems like such a profound contradiction that somehow an Arminius view, I can buy into so much of that, and yet, is it really come down to me? What if, I, what, if I, what if I do fail? What if I have a momentary lapse? What if I, well, and of course many Arminius would argue, and I'm not going to get into, look, this is what I can tell you. This is what I can tell you. A little bit, before I do, a little bit of, a little bit of the history here. Well, John Calvin came up with really, was really the architect of much of this Reformation theology. Now, many think that J John Calvin had his five points of Calvinism, some, sometimes by the acronym of TULIP, T-U-L-I-P, total depravity, uh, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. But actually, John Calvin didn't come up with that. Jacob, uh, Jacob Arminius, in, he began to say, he began to remonstrate this. He began to petition to go against this. And this was called the remonstrance movement. And he says, no, wait a minute. We, we don't agree that it's unlimited and it's irresistible and that you have no choice in it. It's all predestination. That's based on what Augustine said years ago. And we, don't, we can't go that far. We do think that you make a decision, that you have a choice each day, that we just can't go that far. 
So there's something called the Synod of Dort. And at the Synod of Dort, there was this meeting. Finally, they came together, the church, things like this being pulled apart. Now, again, we're talking now 1,500 years after the time of Jesus, a full thousand years after Augustine and Pelagius even lived. And they began to come here and they said, what do we do to these positions? And that's when they, the, the remonstrants, had five particular positions that they had. And so in reaction to that, at the Synod of Dort, that's where we got this five points of Calvinism, just as a backdrop, and I think it's important to say. Can I tell you before I go on, I am deeply persuaded by many of the men and women on both sides of the aisle here. And there's something called neo-Calvinism, that's been this new Calvinism that's really kind of taking place. And some guys, like John Piper, who I deeply, deeply, profoundly respect, Tim Keller, although I think he's somewhat of a hybrid, but I, some of his books have had a profound impact on my life and will continue to have a profound impact on the life of this church indirectly because of the things that I've learned through guys like that. And there are many other Reformed guys in a long list of guys that have really helped me and given me a, a solidity to my own faith. So, and, I, and then on the other side, there are many, many guys that were very much, it was, it was your choice. You make a choice. Billy Graham, make a choice. So many of you have backgrounds that are on one side of this or another. As I alluded to a few weeks ago, if you're on the Arminian side, so to speak, theologically, and it's, it's a, very much about free choice and those things, even though you still trust and believe in the grace of God, you got Methodists, if you have a Methodist background, chances are if you have a charismatic or Pentecostal background, chances are you're on more, much more on the Arminian side, whether you know it or not. Baptists, most Baptists, not all the Reformed Baptists now over here that have kind of kind of crossed the aisle of sorts. If you're a Presbyterian or much of that, you'd be much over on this side, on the Reformed side. So why do you even preach about this? Because you've got, clearly we have a church that we have many of you on one side or the other and some of you didn't even know you were in a fight <laughs> some of you didn't even realize there was a theological battle going on here well I'm going to read this to you Proverbs chapter 18 verse 17 listen to this the first to plead his case seems right until another comes and, and examines him now, I love also what the message says the message which I, I do love which is again it's a commentary it's not a direct parallel, but I love how Eugene Peterson puts it. He says, the first speech in a court case is always convincing until the cross-examination comes. Now, I find this interesting given the week that we've had, if you are someone who pays any attention to what goes on in certain Supreme Court hearings and confirmation hearings, many of you may have been devastated and deeply angered by the, the, the testimony that was given by Dr. Ford. And it's like, look, you were ready to throw this guy, in fact, indict this guy, Kavanaugh. And then Kavanaugh gets up, and he gives such an impassioned plea that at the end, if you're anything like me, you're like, I, I don't even know what to think. I mean, you may have felt very passionately one way or the other, sometimes because of your desire, especially as it relates to Roe v. Wade and some things that could happen on the court. And you know there are political pressures that are going on that are beyond our comprehension. And if there are political pressures, much of that is being string puppet, puppeteers by strong, strong spiritual forces in heavenly places. And you may feel very passionately one way or the other as it relates to these two people. 
But you can admit that when one comes and presents his or her case and you get no cross-examination, you get no other rebuttal, you get no other side of the story, then it's easy if that's all you got to make a decision. And in life, can I just be honest with you, it's rare that that's not the case. We get somebody's position. And maybe you've even learned the word in this way. You were taught this way, your mama was taught this way, your mama's mama's was taught this way, and this is just the way you believe. And one of the beautiful things about true biblical Christianity, we may agree to disagree at various points, but at least we have a text that we can come back to. So there are so many verses to support an Arminian view, but there are equally as many verses to support more of a Calvinistic Reformed view. Are you with me? Again, I'm, some of you have heard me tell this story. It was a great privilege for me. In fact, last night I was thinking about him so much, I went on Amazon and ordered a couple of his books. But I had the privilege at one evening to sit at dinner with one of the greatest Old Testament theologians of our time, a guy named Willem Van Gimmeren. And he looks the part, the long beard, the thing. Some of you have heard me tell this story, but I know we have a few guests. And I also was there. It's just There's only five of us. And the other was Grant Osborne, who is one of the greatest New Testament theologians. If you want to go out, you can get all of his commentaries on every book. The book each book, he's got his testament. I mean, these guys are unbelievably well-sighted. They know more. They will forget more than I will ever know in, in my entire lifetime. These guys are brilliant, brilliant theologians. And they're dear, precious friends. As, as long as I, I will never forget this. As long as I... I'm sitting to the right of Van Gimmeren, and Grant is there on this side, Dr. Osborne. And I, and I of course, was a little, I just said, tell me. I mean, give me the feel here. You guys are on both sides of the aisle here. How can you, how can you be friends? I'll never forget Grant Osborne said, let me tell you something, Jeff. He said, I did a study one time. I did a long study. I took every single verse I could find, everything that even closely supported the view that I hold precious, which is a free will view with God's grace and God's, God's initiation and all that. But I, I'm just telling you, I took every verse that would be in support of that. And let me just give you a few as we go just to through here. Uh, Luke 15, think about it, for instance, the one lost sheep. Why would Jesus be telling just, just the whole heaven river, just one lost sheep, one lost coin, one lost sheep. One, the one is so precious. If they're elected, you know. What does it really matter? He's elected or he's not elected. Peel back the thing like that movie Cocoon one time. Open up the egg and see if he has a big E on his, or if a light shines out of his eyes or something like that. They're either elect or they're not elect. Matthew 23, Jesus says, I, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I've wept over you like a hen weeps over her chicks, and yet you would not have it. In other words, you made a free will decision to reject me. I was begging, I was pleading with you, and yet you made a free will decision to reject me. John 8, with a woman caught in adultery. What does he tell her at the end? Go and sin no more. You make a decision to change your life. Make a free will choice. Romans 10, whoever believes in him, whoever believes in him, it's not going to be disappointed. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all on, who call on him. And in verse 13, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Not just the elect, whosoever will call. Whosoever will make a decision. Are you with me? You start to say, hey, I'm, an, I'm clearly an Arminian. 
Because those verses, I mean, you got to listen to the Bible, don't you? You have to listen to what the Word says. Hebrews 4, 7, as I alluded, today is the day. If you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Turn. Today's the day. Make a choice. Make a choice. Philippians 4, fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Fellow workers. Not just elect, but people who have actually worked. And then Revelation 3, 5. He who overcomes, I will not erase his name from the book of life, but I will confess him before the Father. Are you, wait a minute. He who overcomes, he who endures. If I'm a, if I'm a Calvinist over here, how would, I, how would I deal with that? And let me tell you something. Don't think they can't deal with this. Because these arguments can go back and forth and shift and nuances and what's really predestination and who... It gets very, very complex, but you can see all of those being true. And then from Calvinism, and again, they're absolutely dedicated to sovereignty. Well, an Arminius wouldn't say, I'm not de- of course I'm dedicated to God's sovereignty, but somehow these two things mingle. Ephesians 1.1, we just saw it by the will of God. Philippians 1.6, he will perfect the work that he began in you. I'm confident of that, Paul says. God's doing the perfecting, or is the man doing the enduring? Which is it? Is God perfecting, or is the man doing it? Is this God's responsibility, or is this man's responsibility? 1 John 2, 19. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. There were people in the early church, and they left the early church, and basically Calvinists will say, or many Reformed people will say, they clearly weren't the elect. But that's kind of cheating to me. I've just had something deep down. I'm like, well, if the guy does fall away, then he never really was elect, even though he thought he was elect. And maybe he was even part of the church for 20 years, and then he fell away, but he wasn't really part of the elect. I don't know. I struggle with that too. Ephesians 1, 5, as we looked at, he predestined us to adoption and having believed, and we could just go on and on and on. But the one of the, some of the main verses that I think of is that you were enslaved to sin. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. These guys were dead. They weren't just injured. They were dead. So, see, I'm over here saying, no, you Arminius, you really pay attention to the Scripture. See, you, you, but wait a minute. I agree with this over here, too. I was dead. As I look back at my life, I, I feel like I made some decisions, but the longer... I walk with Jesus, the more I realize, I don't know that I really ever did make that many a decision. I kind of did, but it felt like it was almost a set-up game. God put so many people in my life and drew me into him. I, you know where I find myself? Right in, the, right in the middle. You say, we well, can't do that. Yes, I can. <laughs> yes, I can. Listen to Psalm 107, verse 20. Many of you know it well. And he sent his word and heal them. The word very often is considered medicinal. It's medicine. And here's my, here's my admonition to you for the first seven, eight verses, then I'll close with this. But my, my primary admonition to you is simply this. Use these scriptures as you would medicine in your medicine cabinet. It depends on what kind of wound you're looking at as to what you will apply. If I've got somebody, as, and let me tell you something, if you're in the faith and you're struggling, and I know, I, as a pastor, you know, there are people in your congregation that sometimes are struggling mightily to endure. 
they're struggling. It feels like their faith is hanging on by a thread. It feel, and, and, and yet, you know, you can see their heart. They want to believe. They want, but they're, they're dragged away by particular lusts or idolatry or different things like that, and they're really struggling. Would I then come and, and, and use at that moment? Do I get into my pastoral medicine cabinet and grab out of there Matthew chapter 7? Many will come to me on that day saying, Lord, Lord, we've done all these things in your name. Heal the, dead, uh, heal the sick, raise the dead. And I will say to them, depart from me, for I never knew you. I will tell you that there is a tendency when you go too far into the free will end of your medicine cabinet that it can lead to legalism, it can lead to pride, and it can lead to a sense that you're doing all of it. And that's fine when you feel like you're doing well. But what happens when you don't feel like you're doing so well? Can anybody say in here, since the day I met Christ 40, 50 years ago, or 20 years ago, or 10 years ago, I have just been on a linear path, upwards in God. I've made every right decision. I feel so good about myself. I just feel, if you're kind of in that camp, first of all, you're a little deluded. <laughs> but you might find a real haven over here in an extreme view. I'm not talking about Pelagianism. But what if I've got somebody that says, you know what, I've been going to church, I've served on an elder board, I've given more money than anything you know about, but you know they're, they're involved in an illicit affair right now. You know, they have no sense of remorse or anything. Am I going to go in there and say, don't worry about it, brother, you're, you're saved from the beginning of the time, you're clearly part of the elect, and God will do his work, you just, you know, is that the right, is that what I should go into my medicine cabinet to give or apply or should I come more with a few of these over here and say, look, brother, you need to endure. Those who endure to the end will be saved. You have some responsibility. You have to make some right choices. You cannot just rest in this idea that you're the elect and you don't have any particular need at this particular moment. Now, let me tell you something. I know there are probably many objections that can come up in your mind as there would be with some. But after what? 500 years since the time of the Reformation, have we really resolved these issues thoroughly to where the church is now unified? Or might there be some profound truth in both? I would suggest that you apply the verses when they need to apply based upon the person in front of you or in your own soul at that minute. Work out your salvation with fear. And trembling. Is that something you should do? Amen. Absolutely. It's Bible. Are you predestined before the foundation and chosen in him? Amen. Now, you say you can't reconcile those. I'm going to close with this. And I know I've showed many of you this before, but it's helped many. We have regional, a lot of my regional, our regional staff guys at Links, and because they lead groups like this all over the country. And I've used this for many, many times, and it's helped many, many people. I'm saying many a lot. Sound like Trump. But uh, <laughs> anyway, it's very, very important. So <laughs> I'm just kidding. So as I'm walking forward in time, because I am subject to time and space, and I know some of you have heard me talk about this, but I'm on a timeline. As I walk forward and I look into the future and I get up in the morning, I think of verses like, Jeff, endure to the end, bear fruit for God. He loves those who bear fruit. You know, all the admonitions, all the, 
all the free will decisions that I will make in that day. Go to church. Be involved in a study. You know, the Lord tells me to do something. Those who obey my commands, now these are my disciples, Jesus says. I get up with that in mind. Lord, I want to hear your voice and respond to you today in such a profound way that at the end of the day I will say I walk very closely with the direction that you've given me and I thank you for that. I will make all kinds of free will decisions today. At the end of that day, having walked through time, if I continue to look forward and I say, and now I look back with that same attitude, look at all the wonderful decisions. Boy, you were a good guy. You got up and fed the poor. You gave a lot of money. Look at you. You are living the life. You are, you are a great guy. Look at all the accomplishments you've had. Look at, you planted church. You did this. You, you studied your Bible. You taught, how many Bible studies today? That was incredible, Jeff. Wow, you were really, no. What's going to happen is I look back in time. I look back as a Calvinist looks. It was irresistible. Lord, you set me up for that. You put people in my life. You've chosen me. Or you had a bad day. Lord, I had a, I had a terrible day. And I, I'm asking you to forgive me. But Lord, can I just tell you, I thank you because... You've predestined me before the foundations of the earth. You love me. You've chosen me. And I thank you for that. And it keeps me balanced, people. It keeps me balanced. You cannot corner, corner me on this. I've listened to some of the most profound theologians that are so well-versed and so much understand these topics. And every time I listen to some of them, and I have for years, listen to an hour, somebody's really good. Sometimes R.C. Sproul's so funny and so engaging and so powerful. He is very much all the way over here in this Calvinist camp. I, am, I walk away there and I'm just so, you know what, I'm a Calvinist. And then somebody else comes and delivers their case. And I listen, I listen over here for years I used to do that. And I said, you know what I'm going to do? You tell me I can't do this theologically, but I'm telling you I have and it has worked for me. It settles me. It drives out some of the dissonance in my own heart. I stand squarely in the middle. I apply it because the verses are there. So back in closing to that dinner I had with Grant Osborne, he says, I've done this long study. Did you, I did a whole year. You know what it was? You know how many verses are on the Arminian side versus how many verses are on the Calvinist side? 70-30. I'm kidding you. He said 50-50. And he was he's an, clearly an Arminius, very much. He said, I'm telling you, Jeff, there's a mystery here. You're subject to time and space. There's a mystery here that we can't fully grasp because we are subject to time and space and God is not. I act as though I will make free choices today. And then when I look back, I look at God's sovereignty, his grace, his amazing plans for my life in spite of me who in here cannot say the Lord has been saving me for X amount of years in spite of me in spite of me and so I need my my reformed brothers and I need my sweet Arminian charismatic Pentecostal choice driven brothers and it's not like they've distanced themselves from grace by the way and it's not like these guys have distanced themselves completely from free choice either. They're really the good ones that I really love. They, I think they find some middle ground. Because you have to, because it's, it's in there. So that's our opening to this very difficult. Maybe I handled it not so well. I don't know. 
But I hope you can walk away from here and go, I have to be in this camp or I have to be in this camp. And these are the reasons. Well, it's okay, but don't, don't force that on someone else that may need, in fact, someone. Someone may have grown up in a Christian household or a le- very legalistic. I, I run into them all the time. Very le- they didn't even know that. They just thought that was God. A very legalistic household. And they need to hear that God loves them sovereignly and has chosen them. And that actually lifts them up and they become very much like Jesus, engaged in kingdom culture when they hear that medicine. And I've got others that are a little lax, a little, you know, you know, just been part of this. But hey, I'm free with I'm chosen. And they need a little push. But that would be my take on it. So uh, any questions? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh, that's good. That's good. All right. So, uh, Mr. Crane, I'm going to have you come up and close this in prayer. I didn't tell you, but would you mind coming up and closing this in prayer? Our dear Mike Crane, would you close this in prayer? Yes. Heavenly Father God, um, we just stand just in awe of you, Lord. Um, we just ask your grace just on our finite understanding, Lord, as, as we just seek to understand this, Lord. We just ask that you give us grace to, to trust you, Lord. We, we thank you that you are bigger than us, Lord. Yes. Um, if we could completely wrap our minds around how you work, then you are not a very big God. So we actually praise you that things are confusing to us, Lord, and that at times we can't make sense of them, God. We ask that just through your Holy Spirit, um, as you just tell us in Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit, that you'd in that confusion you would give us peace, Lord, and just faithfulness to continue to trust you, God. We just ask blessings on everyone as they depart from this place, Lord. Help us to walk in step with your Spirit. We just ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, brother. Hey, we love you, Church of the Red Door. Have a great week. And do you want to know who won the Ryder Cup? (laughs) I know many of you have it taped, so I wasn't going to run it for you.